Welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and with me today, I have the Professor. Hello, DJ. Uh, we're back. You... Yeah, we're back after a long, long hiatus. <laughs> a little bit longer than we planned. Moving took time, but I'm in my new studio now, so hopefully things sound better. Ooh, that, that, I, I would love to hear that. So, uh... For today's episode, we'll be talking about the uh, planetary defense system, uh, Phil Spencer be- is he the hero or the villain, and Mass Defect, the TV show. So, uh, And we'll be ending our episodes with, with the usual shout-outs and wacky movies. So uh, on to our first topic, the uh, planetary system. Or should I say, go, go, planetary defense system! Yeah, no. Ah, I was trying to make it sound like a Power Rangers theme song, but that doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't really. NASA's newest launch is the DART mission, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. The goal of this one is to basically crash a spaceship into an asteroid and try to deflect it. It's not going to hit Earth, so let's hope they don't accidentally knock it into a collision course. But I think (laughs) they've probably planned that out. But they're testing to see how well they can deflect the asteroid so in the future when we actually need to deflect asteroids we're ready for it it sounds crazy though the whole idea of uh trying to deflect trying to deflect it it does sound pretty crazy i mean what's wrong with uh with with the standard blow it up with a nuclear weapon and that's and Bob's your uncle. Well, the problem is, if you blow it up with a nuclear weapon, the asteroid is mostly going to keep coming. It's just now many smaller asteroids. And it's hard to make sure that you blow it up enough that the smaller bits of asteroid aren't going to do any damage when they hit the Earth. So it's probably easier in the long run to deflect rather than destroy. And I like how they've uh, they've selected the asteroid to, to test the weapon test this on yes a binary asteroid system named didymus which is the greek word for twin it's an asteroid the size of a football stadium orbiting a chunk of rock five times larger so they're going to fly the dart impactor into the moonlet which is dimorphous at twenty-four thousand kilometers per hour and they're aiming to shorten the orbital track by 10 minutes, so they're basically pushing it into a different orbit that's 10 minutes faster. But they're going to take 73 seconds as a success, because when you're dealing with something that big on that sort of range, a relatively small impact will push it off by a large deflection by the time it actually gets here. I don't know whether uh, this whole idea just reminds me of that one Red Dwarf episode, Remember that episode where Lister was playing planets with a pool cue? Ah, yes. (laughs) That's kind of what's going on here. (laughs) So can you imagine the team at NASA just going like, okay, think of this pool, think of this eight ball as the dart. Think of the the, uh, other balls as the asteroids. Okay, we're going to... And the planets, so we're going to try and the, and think of the holes as the planets to dump it in. I can imagine the scientist in the um, in the meeting room being like, okay, we're going to put this uh, put, put this dimorphous asteroid on the um, on, on the corner pocket. How are you going to do that? 
Well, you could also use it for war. It wouldn't be a very good weapon. But if there was a planet that you didn't like and you bumped the asteroid just right, it would fly into the planet. But you need to find an asteroid that's already going the right direction, adjust its aim, hope that nothing happens to it on the way there, hope that the people on the planet who are probably going to see it coming from a long way away, don't get decide to go and nudge it a different way. It'll take a it's whole lot of luck. <laughs> yeah, it will take a whole lot of luck just to find an asteroid. You're like, uh, okay, yeah. uh, oh, there's one right there. <laughs> that kind the of hard part is uh, putting in enough Delta V to aim the asteroid, but it would be a good way of eliminating a primitive uh, non-spacefaring race if you decide that you just... Don't get along with them anymore. Asteroid. Sorry, aliens. If you're listening to this podcast, please don't do that to us. <laughs> We're better than we look, I swear. Um, the, I like how one, one of the quotes they say that the asteroid dart is, uh, is aimed at poses, no actual, th- no actual threat, and is tiny compared to the cataclysmic Chicxulub um, asteroid that struck Earth about 66 million years ago, leading to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Okay, you got to start small, though. You're not going to take out Chicxulub first try, so you might as well test it on a smaller asteroid because you need less resources to redirect the smaller asteroid than you would need to actually go and redirect something the size of Chicxulub. But then smaller asteroids do tend to hit Earth more often, so this does have a benefit there. Yeah, what's going to be interesting is how many uh h- how many Hollywood movies are going to be uh, spawning out of this idea though. I mean, goodbye uh, Michael Bay's is it, no, not Bay, Jerry Bruckheimer's Armageddon movie where you just I've send already had co- Armageddon and Deep Impact. Oh yeah, we already had that, but then the whole idea of sending a sending a few people onto the asteroid and blowing it up from the uh blowing it up from there now we're just using dart this isn't nearly as exciting though like it's just launch a rocket from earth wait for it to get to the asteroid deflect the asteroid and then wait a hundred years to see if it worked it's not like armageddon where you've got people actually going to the asteroid and actually blowing it up and for, and uh, like in the last paragraph of this article, they say uh, NASA puts the entire cost of the DART project at, at $330 million, well below that of many space agencies' most ambitious science missions. Cheap is good. Yeah, yeah, cheap is good. That means we can do this more often. Can you imagine uh, Elon Musk just being, all right, I'm going to use my th- $330 million to just uh, launch myself into Mars. You're saying use Elon himself as the impactor. No, can you imagine Elon just using himself as the impactor? Yeah, so a human body, let's assume 70 kilograms, hitting Mars <laughs> would do bugger all. <laughs> yeah, okay, so theoretically speaking, how, what, how do you see the success of this um, idea? I mean, I think it's likely to be successful. I think it's not that hard to actually hit a target in space when you understand, you know, astrophysics which I'm assuming NASA does. It's kind of their job. So it won't be that hard to actually hit the asteroid. Once it does hit, they'll be able to deflect it because it's a fairly simple equation. You've got the asteroid going this speed. These are the forces. You're applying this extra force. This is going to be the new vector. It's not exactly complex. Yeah, but then In terms of science, it's not complex. That's true. But there are moments where you just go, okay, I did not anticipate this moment. Yeah, 
something might go wrong. Maybe you'll lose uh, communications with the with the probe. Maybe it'll get hit by debris on takeoff. Lots of things go wrong in space, but you know everything that can be accounted for will be accounted for. Yeah, yeah. And once you leave Earth orbit, there's not really that much stuff out there. There's a small density of interplanetary dust and gas. But realistically, at these sort of speeds, the DART impact will be going. That's not going to be an issue. And the other interesting questions would be, besides NASA, will there be any other space? Could we see other uh, space agencies around the world adopting this model? Yeah, I think we need a planetary defense initiative because an asteroid of significant size hitting one country will affect the whole world. So it would be best to avoid that any time we can. Maybe the UN could take on planetary defense roles. They could found their own uh, space corps. They could have Marine Corps, and then they could go and investigate aliens and rings. But we we already have a space we corps. Could, it, we, we could call it Ring, the game but, that we make about it. But we already have a... Going with this, right, DJ? Oh, kind of. <laughs> oh, but we already have a space corps. It's called Space Force. That's American only, though. Ah. Uh, the UNSC would be international, and it would be responsible for planetary defense missions. And I like some of the um, specif- specifications about the uh, DART spacecraft. It's a, it's cube-shaped with two rectangular solar arrays. That's it. I'm like, okay. It doesn't more... need to be anything special. It's just mass. It yeah. just basically throwing a stone at another stone to make the other stone go a different way. Anyway, so uh, uh, in the interest of time, should we uh, move on to the second topic? We should. Yep. So... Bill Spencer. <laughs> I'm sure we've all heard of him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what, he, what has he done? Well, he's the head of uh, Xbox. You might have heard of that company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, he's the head of Xbox. Yep. Yep, surprise, surprise, what I said was true. And he's definitely a lot more popular than the last head of Xbox, uh, Don, I think. I don't remember his last name. Especially since he says stuff that makes me very happy, like the industry should work on legal emulation and NFT games feel more exploitive than about entertainment. Uh, You mean the former Xbox uh, head was Don Matrick? Yeah, that's the one. Behind the famous, if you don't have an internet connection, we have a product for you, the Xbox 360, (laughs) when the Xbox One was announced. No way. Did he actually say that? Yeah. (laughs) The Xbox One announcement was an absolute disaster, and they then replaced Don Matrick with Phil Spencer. So Phil Spencer has basically said the uh, whole legal emulation and... NFTs in gaming. Okay. Legal emulation, as much as much as I can say, it's a good idea. But on the other hand, it can also be a bad idea. I feel like we should define legal emulation before we actually make decisions about it. Okay, yeah, sure. So sure. you probably realize by now I'm a big fan of old games and keeping things running past their lifespan. Part of the reason for that is that the easiest way to play old games, and the only really legal way to play most old games, well, old console games, PC games are easier to play, but old console games, you need an original piece of hardware. And good luck finding a, you know, an Atari that survives since the 70s unharmed. 
or even an Xbox from 20 years ago has a capacitor in it that will blow up and take the Xbox with it. So it's getting harder to find original hardware, and most of it's already gone into the hands of collectors. But Phil seems to be a man after my own heart, and made a point about preserving the past of gaming. He said, My hope, and I think I have to present it that way as of now, is as an industry we'd work on legal emulation that allowed modern hardware to run any, within reason, older executable allowing someone to play any game. And you might think, that just sounds like, let's play old games. But it's more complicated than that. It's not necessarily easy to emulate these old hardware. And fans have already done a pretty damn good job of emulating most consoles. But there are things that they can't get right or can't get working because they don't have that level of insider knowledge. They don't have access to the original data sheets for how the CPU works. But wouldn't wouldn't all those be located within the uh, source code? No. No, the processor specification wouldn't be. So fans and emulator developers have to backwards engineer the hardware and figure out how it works, piece it back together and make the emulator. But a company like Microsoft has access to further information that would allow them to make a better, more complete emulator. They also have infinitely more funds than a indie team of emulator devs. And an emulator made by Microsoft would also not run the risk of being shut down, which is a risk that other emulator devs have to deal with. But the other other problem would be, can you imagine Xbox emulating uh, Nintendo games? And Nintendo, we all, um, they have a very, very big history with emulators and how they go about dealing with emulators. Yeah, you can already do that, but Nintendo's not a big fan of emulation. They like the idea of being able to sell you the same game every three or so, three or four years. It's not perfect, but I don't think an Xbox would be emulating a Nintendo game unless Nintendo allowed it. Nintendo would develop their own emulator to run on Xbox. See, my problem with um, legal emulation would be, let's say you've got the um, let's let's say for example, you've got a Halo game, um, the original Halo game, and it has um, it it has one of the original content, one of the original stuff in there that you will not see in the new version of the Halo game, like the Halo Remastered. So specifically, how- that would most likely be the uh, Red Cross logo on the health packs. Yeah, it turns out the Red Cross organization doesn't like it when games use Red Crosses on health packs. There's a whole big thing behind that I could dive into, but but yeah, that, that but- is an issue. Licensing is an issue. Some older games have gone off the market because they contain music that isn't licensed anymore. Alan Wake went off the market for about a year because they were figuring out the licensing. Yeah. Uh, the GTA remasters have... Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Which one? I know they're not great, but they have music taken out of them to suit the licensing issues. But if you have an original copy of the game, you can't run it like you can't just shove an Xbox game in a Xbox One and hope for it to work. It needs to be part of the backwards compatibility system. And backwards compatibility is a bit different to the way that legal emulation would work. The backwards compatibility system that Microsoft has is basically remaking the game for the new console. They go in and tweak the executable and do a bunch of optimization and basically put together a new product. 
So when you put your CD in, you're not actually playing off the CD, you're playing a downloaded copy of the game that's heavily modified to run on the new Xbox. Whereas a legal emulation option would likely not get you the best performance. The best performance would be the backwards compatibility. The legal emulation might be buggier, but it would mean that you wouldn't need to wait for someone to make a port of the game. You could just take your game from 20 years ago and put it in your new console and it will just work. But uh, as I said, the original content would be, there would be a bit of a problem with that. Well, it's not a problem to you own the game that has licensed content in it. The problem is selling it. Mm. So there still isn't a problem because you're not buying the game from Microsoft. Microsoft has nothing to do with the licensing in this case. It's you taking the game that you paid for 20 years ago and putting it into a console that you bought in the last 12 months and getting it to work. So I don't think that's an issue legally. I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but legally, I don't think that's a problem at all. And I like um, his quote His quote about this. He goes, I think we can learn from the history of how we got here got here through creative he said um i love it in music i love it in movies and tv and there's positive reasons for for gaming to want to follow i mean he's he's pretty he's not wrong there yeah and with as he also points out with movies and music it's relatively easy to bring it into the next generation yeah people even still make new record players and new cd uh, new tape players for playing older content. It's not like games where when your player breaks, you lose all access. There's still usually an option to be able to bring it back to life. You know what's interesting about that quote, the more I think about it, is that even though the gaming industry earns a lot more money than the movies and the TV industry, it's backwards in a sense. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say it's backwards i'd say it's quite progressive uh, i mean as in like you, you could like with music for example you could like you said you can play the old music on um with with you can play the same old music on uh, on new uh newer players and stuff you same know with- if, you know if record companies figured out a way to do it they would be doing what the games industry is doing and stopping you from playing your record on newer hardware oh boy have you it- ever heard of the riaa um, the acronym sounds familiar, but I don't think I have the record. The recording. If the RIAA had their way, we'd still be using CDs. Streaming would have never taken off. There are big established companies like that that don't want people using their old stuff, so they can sell them a new copy. Yeah. As game developers, we have you know we don't have to go that way. We can go and make a game that works make sure that we can make games work 20 years down the line we don't because it's a, a lot of effort and a lot of uncertainty as publisher, well yeah publishers don't necessarily like it but though there are fans who make emulators so that the culture is preserved but if the raaa and other record industry organizations had their way do you remember using before itunes was a thing how did you buy your music online? Uh, the the uh, cassettes and CDs. So you didn't buy music online at all? No. Okay. Well, I bought a couple of tracks for use in a school project back in uh, 2004, 2005, thereabouts. It might have even been later than that. It might have been 06. Anyway, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And... 
it was all DRM'd. You had to buy it from particular stores. The DRM locked it down so you could only play it in certain players on certain computers. And that's not to mention the Sony rootkit controversy, where they were installing viruses onto CDs to stop people copying them. But then, you know, I'm going to praise Apple a little. I don't normally. iTunes came along, and part of Apple's requirement was that they really cut back on the DRM and everything, and that basically was the first step towards what we have now, where you can get your music on any of a dozen different services. They don't pay the artists great. Yeah, it's, that's a different issue. But access isn't an issue, for most music anyway. Mm-hmm. I think the Beatles are exclusive with Apple. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've looked into that. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I will say this, though, in terms of bu- purchasing um, music and whatnot, it's not as crazy as how it is now with the NFTs. Terrible segue, but yes, NFTs. I've made it very clear that I'm not a fan of NFTs. And I've made it very clear that I'm less of a fan of NFTs in games. But Phil Spencer has said that he considers NFT games currently to be more exploitive than about entertainment. And that was speculation and experimentation. And that that's not the kind of content he wants on the Xbox store. And that's sort of following along with Valve. Valve blocked uh, NFT games a few months back. Epic Games has said that they're open to it, but ultimately I'm on the anti-NFT camp. I don't think the cost is worth the gain currently. Like, if they could make an NFT that didn't have all of the negatives, I'd be cool with it, but no one's working on that, it seems. And I think, you know, I agree with him that it's quite exploitive at the moment. Currently, the only games I've seen using NFTs have almost all been basically crypto scammers. I haven't I ha- seen any big publishers take on NFTs. I mean there were, I mean NFTs now have just have exploded. Um like what was it, a couple of weeks ago I saw the uh NFT about uh, a monkey? Yeah, how, the monkey nonsense. Yeah, and how uh, I saw videos I saw a video from on YouTube where some guy was talking about oh I could uh, copy and paste this, and not pay the fourteen grand that it was that it was originally priced. You could, but then the NFT doesn't say that you own it, and don't you know that's the important bit <laughs> for an ugly drawing of a monkey. They're hideous, and there's a group who want to buy a NBA team and put them on a crypto exchange so you can buy you can buy cryptocurrency that is equivalent to shares and they're like oh no this isn't shares it's like <laughs> hey, we invented this like 100 years ago get over yourself are you serious wait 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 are you serious that's actually a thing yes it is oh no I- i'm i'm looking at i, I can- say because it gets even crazier before the they decided to buy the NBA team, they decided they wanted to buy the uh, U.S. Declaration of sorry, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, I'm reading an article by uh, Bobby Allen from NPR. How he say how crypto enthusiasts want to buy an NBA team after failing to purchase the yeah <laughs> the U.S. Constitution. Oh boy. Yeah. So. At, at- Okay, at this point, the NFTs are just an uh, are just get rich quick schemes. 
at this point. Currently, we're in the sort of wild experimentation phase. There's some interesting ideas, but none of the implementations I've seen so far have really jumped out at me as anything worthwhile. But um, okay, so but in terms of gaming, what do you think of it? So what do you think of it though? I think it's a horrible thing for gaming. I think it's something that is a ridiculous waste of computing power for gaming. It's not like the benefits that you would get from having a game that works with NFTs and on the blockchain don't really match the benefit that you'd get. Like they don't match the cost. And I think we're a few years away from actually seeing a worthwhile NFT game. We did speak a few weeks ago about an NFT metaverse where owning the NFT of something would basically give you permission to, you know, use that as your avatar across the metaverse. That's an interesting implementation, but it hasn't been done yet. But I'm still not convinced that making that an NFT rather than a simple storefront is actually worth the effort. I'm just happy to see that there's big companies who are, you know, making the point that currently NFTs are absolutely nuts. But it's only a matter of time before the, uh, like, let's say EA decides to come in and just say, we're going to use NFTs on our sports games like FIFA. Yeah, only a matter of time. And they're going to do it because it makes good marketing. I just don't think it's worth the cost. And the other question would be, like, with NFTs and gaming, do you reckon it's becoming more and more lucrative than uh, the traditional loot boxes that we sort of been experiencing for years and years now? They're kind of a different thing. Yeah, they're really a different thing. You could buy a loot box on as an NFT, so they don't really exclude each other. So what does this mean for the future of gaming when, when Phil Spencer says the whole this idea is very exploitative in a sense? Do you reckon that's a, a time a time to pause and reflect, or is he just... I think I made my point clear that, yes, we need to pause and reflect and think about the impacts of NFTs and how we're using them, rather than shoving them into anything we can for marketing purposes. But I, I agree with you there, but... Uh... Like I would like to see more voices come up and talk about this. Like, uh, I mean, Phil Spencer, yeah, he is a big wig, but I don't see anyone else talking about. It. Like, I don't see, for example, uh, Todd Howard, the uh, the guy, the guy behind the Fallout games, talking about how NFTs are destroying the games industry. In a sense, you've got a lot of big people. I mean, Take Two have actually stated that they are into NFTs. So the problem is we're not seeing anyone actually discuss the implementation, I think. I think we're just seeing people saying, do it because it's the current hype thing and it will make us a boatload of money. I just, yeah, I think we need to talk about the implementation and work out how this is going to work and why we should be doing it this way and not another way. How long do you reckon before the uh, before government starts coming in and going, Oi, hey, pay up, guys? Right away, like the like what they did with the loot boxes, though. I mean, that the, it, no, that's loot a- boxes took years, but the governments are already onto crypto and NFTs. Okay, I do remember uh, there was a story a couple of months back that China does not allow uh, crypto anymore. Yeah, I'm sure people are already actually, you know, breaking the law there, but it's you know, it is what it is. Governments are going to try to regulate it. People are going to try to get around it because people think the whole point of crypto is to not be regulated by the government. Uh, uh, so uh, we should move on to the uh, to our final topic, the uh, Mass Defect, the TV show. Or, uh, or it's uh, Mass Effect, the TV show. 
But uh, yeah, according to uh, Spencer McCauley, Amazon, in a new report, are on the verge of creating a Mass Effect TV series. Oh, dear. (laughs) You don't sound happy. I don't think this can be good, because the whole point of Mass Effect is that, you know, I know people are got upset about the ending of the third game but a big point of it is that your choices matter and you're developing your own version of Captain Shepard so they're going to take this and if it's a straight adaptation of the games it's got to be they've got to come up with a canonical Shepard so uh Amazon's uh, head Jennifer Salke uh, asserted and I quote we can firmly say that The Wheel of Time is the most watched series premiered of the year and one of the top five series launches of all time for Prime Video. And she also added, there are tens and th- tens and tens of millions of streams for the series is just, in fact, three days of release. Although, mind you, she hasn't disclosed any uh, information about it. Uh, but simply telling, try to fit... Try to figure out how transparent we're going to be in the future. And viewership was, and I quote, definitely trending to exceed our expectations, which are high. Yeah, so it's all a bunch of noise, really. They're saying that they're making a bunch of money with the shows they've got, and they're ready to work on more, and they want to work on Mass Effect. But yeah. they won't say what it's going to be. <laughs> so I can see this going horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> And it's interesting you mentioned that because they said she also said you'll see us continuing to invest in fantasy genre of all kinds. We have a genre focused team on the ground in studios who wish who work tirelessly with our creative partners on these slates, and you can look forward to more. Oh boy! Yeah, I think they're grabbing up anything really popular. So they've got some interesting stuff going on. Foundation, I think, is one of theirs. Wheel of Time. Let's just hope that they're. Uh, movie and series department can pull off better hits than the game studio. I, I mean, it's fun to see Amazon like doing some interesting stuff. I mean, they've got some. They've recently had some good hits, like uh, the Invincible series, for example. Really good series. Um, they also had the. They're also got the hyped up Lord of the Rings series, which oh boy, that's going to be an interesting one. Yep. With this one, I feel like it's. I, it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard to to put it because you're right. It's you're gonna you have to make a canonical shepherd, and all the other characters. What's gonna be even more interesting is how the character dynamics are gonna be placed. At are are, are you gonna get like in within with Mass Effect the game like you would get like romances with with other aliens and stuff. Like, are you gonna see that in the series or Just are they- throw it all in? Make <laughs> Captain Shepard the first years. Man in the galaxy, or woman, <laughs> if they decide to go that way. It, it, Everyone. It, <laughs> Captain Shepard should be reporting to Medbay with new STDs from whatever planet he's just landed on. <laughs> Basically how Star Trek went, but... yeah. Oh, oh boy, that, that's... That, 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 Captain Shepard going to, going to where no man has gone before. Somewhere, like I think it comes down to whoever's writing the series. Like, like if they can do, if if they can write a, a decent enough like space sci-fi series for Amazon, then okay, sure. Because space sci-fi and Amazon have not been having a good run. Like with uh with how Captain P- how Picard went in the uh in the recent 
months and years. Uh, it didn't go well, so I'm I'm thinking they tr- they might make they might try and recoup the recoup the space genre with this. Was Picard an Amazon show? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So they've got a couple of fantasy hits, but yeah, they don't seem to have a sci-fi hit at the moment. Maybe this is it. I'm assuming. You know, I just think that. Unless they take it and do a story set outside the main games, it's going to be an absolute disaster. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, I was wrong. It wasn't a... It's not Amazon. It's a CBS show. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I was... I was mistake. I was right. Bloody let me down again, DJ. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think the sci-fi... The American sci-fi shows have been going... Yeah, they've been going badly these days. I mean, Star Trek Discovery, it's... I don't know what to say. I don't don't know what to say about that show. Picard, it's a mess. Uh, The only good good shows we we have is the Orville and the one with Steve Carell in it. Space Force? Yeah. And even that one's hardly sci-fi. What would you like to see in the the Mass Effect uh, TV series? I don't know. I mean, I'm a sucker for digging into the background of different alien species and planets they live on, but I don't think that'll be something that they'll actually try. I could actually see that. Yeah, I, I could actually see that happening. It, it, it will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of time. Like, what is the life of an average person in the Mass Effect Alliance? <laughs> because that- you know. In the games, you follow Captain Shepard, who's the big damn hero. But what's it like, you know, living on a planet? They could do a politics-featured thing and have all the species arguing in the Citadel. Okay, curiously, though, could you see this as a... Could you see this show as a stepping stone for uh, future game-to-TV series adaptations, in your point of view? Only if it's good. If it's bad, then we'll see everyone freak out, shy away from game adaptations again. I'm hoping, though, that we're going through a bit of a renaissance of sci-fi. We'll have to wait and see, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyways, uh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with our shout-outs and wacky movie. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So uh, on to our shoutouts. Uh, we're a bit late, but on the 11th of the 11th, we passed the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone film adaptation. The film adaptation were as much of a hit as the original novels and led to eight film adaptations and a set of three Fantastic Beasts spin-offs. Just about every significant British actor had a role in the series which author J.K. Rowling insisted on being as British as possible. And damn, that that movie was a great, great movie. Yes, the, the first half of the series adapted to movie quite well, but I don't think the second half did quite as well because it was so much denser. I think there's a lot more going on, and I think they uh, sort of ran into time constraints with the later movies. 
Yeah. I mean, it shows when you had the Deathly Hallows split into two parts. Yeah. They also, I don't think, were as sure of what the story was going to be as J.K. Rowling was. So, actually, yeah. So, no, that doesn't add up, really, because the last book came out in 2007, and the last movie came out in 2011. So, it does feel like they didn't know what was going to be significant, though. Hmm. So, there's a few things that they didn't set up that they should have set up in earlier movies. Do you have any uh, favourite memories from the first Harry Potter movie? Um, Well, I know I was one of the first Australians to go and see it. Oh, no. Because my school had a fundraiser to go to viewing. I was, I was, I I was like... Have you read the books, though? Okay, I've always mean to find the movies more entertaining. But, uh, do you have a favourite scene? There's a few of them. I mean, the actual final duel between Harry and Voldemort in the last movie is pretty the side of that that are a bit silly, but the actual duel itself is good. With the uh, philosophers... actually... Basically anything with Voldemort because Ralph Fiennes is so creepy. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, with the uh, first movie though, did you have any favorite scenes in that one? Um, right. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've actually watched the first movie, and I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I'm sure was the first movie and not the second. Um, I've I've got one. I've got a couple, but my most favorite one is the one where. Hagrid just breaks down the door when <laughs> just goes up to Harry, just gives him the letter of Hogwarts. And yeah, uh, they really did overreact a bit to get away from the letters. <laughs> and uh, I, I like how one of the guys took a pointed the gun at Hagrid, and Hagrid just twit, just like <laughs> twisted the end of it just to the ceiling. Like, you ain't shooting me. Yeah, although I remember even when I was young, how silly it was that the. Uh, shots curved like that's not how barrels work <laughs> they can't turn that tightly that's not gonna happen but it's still a great scene yeah and uh and what did you just thought about um the the whole twist at the end with uh when it when we all thought we all suspected that it was snape but at the end it but it wasn't snape it was professor quirrell uh i'd read the book already so i knew that was coming but it um it does a good job of setting up Snape as the bad guy, and then you realize no, it's Quirrell, and you realize all of the little things that that are actually his doing. Yeah. So uh, moving along, on the twenty third, the Tamagotchi celebrated its twenty fifth birthday. Uh, if you didn't forget to, f- if you for- didn't forget to feed it, uh, Tamagotchis, which were ten pixel creatures that lived in keychain. In a keychain fob, had uh, unpausable real life, real time life, uh, which required real attention, leading players to risk trouble in class to keep their pets alive. They were also one of the first games to use this style of continuous real time interaction across the entire range. More than eighty two million Tamagotchis have been sold. Did you ever own one uh, when you were around that time? No, I've never had a Tamagotchi, but my brother has had a knockoff. How addicted was he? Um, I don't know if the knockoff was harder than the Tamagotchi originals, but he basically couldn't keep it alive. <laughs> also, the there was a reset button that was really easy to accidentally press. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I like with Tamagotchis how it was so addictive, like people would just would just go, 
I gotta go. I gotta go. I, I gotta feed my Tamagotchi. I gotta feed my Tamagotchi. Damn it. What's the longest you ever kept one alive for? Oh, I, I never. Okay, full disclosure. I have never owned a Tamagotchi, but I did. I, I played its, uh, would you call it a brother? Uh, the Digimon. And I kept that going for four days. Not great. Yeah, this was the uh, muscular count. Yeah, Digimons were the muscular counterpart. Yeah, four days, but it was just me and my brother. We would just co- continuously fight over stuff. So yeah, ah, uh, brothers. <laughs> but in, but initially, that that thing was a craze. That was a craze. Uh, so uh, moving along, David Lawson, co-founder of Psygnosis and Imagine Software, passed away on the twenty fifth at sixty two. He co-founded Imagine in 1982 when he was 23, where he wrote for Arcadia and R. Didims for ZX Spectrum. The studio fell apart when while working on Bandersnatch and Cyclapse in 1984, with Lawson moving on to co-found Psygnosis. Psygnosis created Wipeout and helped DMA designs with Lemmings. They were eventually bought by Sony and were one of the biggest devs in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, they had a whole lot of lot of games back in the day yeah the and also bandersnatch might be familiar to you it's a well it's a mythical creature but it's also the game that they were making in the netflix choose your own adventure oh yeah i i remember that is this is that is is that thing still going though or have they no it was only a one-off Ah, did you ever have a good, uh, have a favorite Psygnosis game back in the day? I probably did, but I probably can't remember it. But Lemmings is always a classic. They they did work on that with uh, DMA Design, who you might know better as Rockstar Games. Okay. Yep, that Rockstar, you know, GTA. They're the people who made the original Lemmings game. My favorite Psygnosis game back in the day would be Metal Fatigue. And it's ba- it, it was basically uh, create your gigantic robot and fight against other gigantic robots. That sounds fun. Yeah. I see it's on Steam. Ooh, okay. I'm going to buy that game and I've, when, when we finish recording then. So uh, on to our wacky movie. And on the same day in 1977, Logan's Run arrived in Spain. Logan's Run was an early dystopian movie centered around a self-contained city where everyone is ritually sacrificed to maintain the population when they turn 30. Some residents try to escape to the outside world, while policeman uh, Logan hunts them. And uh, there was some interesting trivia to that movie. So, for example, Logan's run was filmed in a mall under construction, which was a futuristic setting for the 70s, but seemed very dated today. The retro-futurist mall was the Dallas Market Center. They also filmed the scene with the weird fountain with the steps. That's uh, at the Fort Worth Water Garden, which is basically part of Dallas. Fort Worth, Dallas are sort of two towns next to each other. One of them founded around a military base. Nice, nice. So, like, the airport is Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Uh, This was the first movie to combine live-action shots with holograms. Uh, The Ice Cave was filmed in summer in Los Los Angeles. Extra frozen um, in ice were painted white and had to stand perfectly still. Oh, that's got to be tough. I mean, that has to be insane. Yeah, I can't imagine that was very comfortable. In the in, in a hot summer in Los Angeles, that's... Yeah, you're asking for it. <laughs> um, although homosexuality has been defined as a mental illness, 
Until a few years earlier, Logan's run is very progressive and depicted homosexual relationships as normal and common. Uh, the ruined city scenes used abandoned sets from other films, and the Sandman energy weapons used butane canisters to create a muzzle flash. The mechanism was very unreliable, and Michael York said the guns fired as much as they fired. Oh, misfired. Sorry. Come on, DJ. Get your glasses on. <laughs> yeah, that, that that must have been crazy as well. That must have been crazy. Yeah, I can't imagine it would have been fun. I'm hoping that it was like only when they were actually handling them and they didn't have little butane explosions going off in their pockets. Oh boy, a chunk. Imagine a chunk of your leg just blown up by that. Ugh. Probably wouldn't blow up. It would just give you some nasty burns. Mm. I, I will say this though, with all the with, with all this interesting trivia with this movie. You gotta admit the practical effects were the pra- There was a lot of emphasis on practical effects. I mean, can you imagine doing this nowadays? To be fair, they didn't exactly have CGI in the seventies. Oh yeah, yeah, but there was a but the amount of creativity that went to it to how yeah. to, how to get the effects. But nowadays, it's just okay. We're gonna make this a, a five million dollar CGI cgi mess yeah sort of had even more cgi and green screen than they did yeah so uh that's all we have for this week uh you can find us on facebook uh, instagram twitter that's not canada.com we have an archive of our old episodes and new episodes and also find other that's not canon podcasts and that's all we have for this week uh hope to see you soon look after yourself stay hydrated and we'll see you next time deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market